Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today at Matterdale, north of Oldswater, with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Oh, hello, David. The season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, Mark. I don't know about you, but my journey here today, glorious inversions all over the lakes. In the Eden Valley, just mist. Was it? <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. But interestingly, nothing here at all other than cobwebs, dew, a lovely, fine autumn morning. I love this time of year. If you could have this all year round, wouldn't life be heaven? Well, I think the schools go back next week, which is usually when the weather improves anyway. Absolutely. Feel for the lads and lasses. <laughs> Last time we were in this neck of the woods, we briefly touched on some of the impacts that regenerative farming can have on not just biodiversity, but also slowing the flow, slowing down water before it reaches some of the streams, some of the rivers, some of the lakes, and cause the kind of damage that historically we've seen in Cumbria. And today we're going to expand much more on that and look at how a whole catchment can manage uh, some of that water flow in the context, very specifically, of a terrible event that happened here a few years back. The one in Glen Ridding, which was absolutely fearsome and really damaged the village. If you start delving into these kind of issues for long enough, particularly in this valley, one man's name crops up time and time again. Danny Teasdale is our guest today, and he's been right in the driving seat of this project, the Ellswater CIC, Community Interest Company, channeling funds and orchestrating projects that I think we'll discover today are almost revolutionary, certainly in a whole valley setting. Yeah, it's an exemplar valley, this, really, and is being looked at widely within the National Park now into how we can work with landowners, with farmers, intersecting with tourism, with young people in particular, planting loads of trees, hedgerows, ponds, re-wiggling. So we're going to cover all of those kind of approaches to land management today in this valley that certainly for me has been very inspirational Oh yes, this is a a much-loved, let's say, tourist valley. But actually it's far more than that by a long, long shot. This is a living heritage landscape that has a great natural history basis. And that is what we'll be looking at today. Well, I can see Danny waiting for us over there. We've got the Belted Galloways in the background there. Some hens, I think, in their morning, um, morning calls. Chuckle. The sun slowly rising now over Little Melfell. So let's go and meet Danny. Well, it's a lovely opening gambit. We've entered a pasture that has had its hay crop taken off. And uh, Danny, in a aside, told me that there was some 50 or more species of clovers and grasses and wildflowers in this meadow. So immediately you're into a, a wonderful, rich pasture. And in the setting I'm in, uh, over to my right, I can see the backside, uh, the northern side of Gowbarrow Fell. And then ahead of me, I can see the northern slopes of Little Melfell. And over to my left, I've got the lovely wooded slopes of Great Melfell. It's a great little spot, and I'm with Danny Teasdale. Great to see you, Danny. Can you tell me a little bit about your life, what drew you to Ellswater? Yeah, yeah. Morning. How are you doing? A quick sort of overview. Um, I've lived in this area all my life. So we're from Penruddock. I grew up in Penruddock and the family had a little bit of land there and used to do bits of farming there, which they don't anymore. And I've always looked after the conservation side of it. I've always been really, really interested in that side of things. And um, what would it be, about sort of seven or eight years ago, somewhere like that, 
moved to Glenridding. Fantastic place, absolutely fantastic place. Immediately you talk about Glenridding. Still lingering after five years, or is it six years now, is the memory of that night of Storm Desmond, uh, 6th of December, was it? Now that was a shocking moment for the village. Uh, yeah, Mike, that's right. Yeah, it was, uh, it was 2015. And um, I first sort of started noticing that something was really going for it on the, on the day before. And it rained and rained and rained and was just chucking it down. And we live on a slope, which you wouldn't have thought would be able to flood. But it was just raining so hard, the drains couldn't take it. It started to fill up. And even on our house, I thought, blimey, this is, this is getting scary. This is going to start coming in soon. We went to bed and got up the next morning and I have never seen anything like it. I've never seen devastation like that. I went down into the car park in Glenridin and basically the river channel was full of gravel. The river was now running through the middle of the car park in Glenridin through the tourist information centre. On the other side of the road, it was running through the shops. It's phenomenal, the amount of stone and material that it's dropped all over the roads. The stones that you couldn't lift and it's washed them out of the beck onto the road. It was just like nothing I've ever seen. Everyone started to get up and we started to sort of assess what was going on and assess the damage and, and walking further down the village and walking just out of the village my mother-in-law has got the cafe there. It was up to the ceiling in there. It was absolutely devastating. And it will have brought down lead mines spoil the lot. There was sediment. There was, like you say, there was lead spoil. It washed out heating oil tanks from the village oil. There was diesel oil all through the water everywhere. You looked at the lake and it was virtually a cream opaque colour from the lead washings that had come out of there. Yeah, it was horrible. What seeds of new ideas were sprung at that moment? Immediately after the floods, we were, um, we were cut off. We were isolated from, from both ways, so there was no emergency services could get through anyways. So there was uh, a handful of us just thought, right, well, we've got to set to and do something and start to unblock the bridge ourselves. We got in the back with the chainsaws and we cleared the trees out from under the bridge. And from that point on there, there was sort of a core group of us that really wanted to come together and see if we could try and prevent this again, basically, because it was awful. Um, and so after that, we set up a, a flood action group. And so there were several of us doing the flood action group. And, and because I live in the area, I've got farming background. Uh, I've got lots of friends that are farming. But I do also like my conservation, and I'm really keen on that. We decided that I would look into upstream works and look at is there anything that we could do to store water slow water look into different land options upstream and that worked really well and that was sort of in the confines of Glenridin and Patterdale it grew from the point of just being focused on Glenridin and Patterdale to then having other farmers and other landowners around Ullswater saying can you come and have a look at my land can you come and see what we can do here that's how it started and that then began an expansion I couldn't get any kind of funding or anything like that as Danny Teasdale, so it was suggested that I set up a, a community interest company. So I did, and it progressed and is thankfully still progressing from there. That's given us the feel of where you came from, uh, how it emerged. Where are you going to take us today? Whenever I wander around these fields at Matterdale, around here, and, and the reason that I've brought you here, because there's, there's quite a lot of good examples of things that have been done, but also the sort of connectivity and to show that there are neighbours doing work as well. So we can have a wander around and I can show you exactly what other people are doing and how we're all starting to sort of work together now and come together on this one and all the different multiple sort of benefits that are going on in this area. Well, we slipped through a gate and came upon a beck that was as good as dry. It's Cooper or Cowper Beck. Anyway, Danny brought us along to where he has relocated Cowper Beck, Cooper Beck. And I'm standing in the water and I've just seen a tiny brown trout swimming upstream. And uh, the beck, just at this moment, it splits so the, the water goes naturally one way and the other and then naturally comes together again and we're right in the middle of the meadow. Can you give us a bit of a feel for what's going on here Danny? 
Yeah, the channel that you that you walk through, the dry channel, was the original course of the beck. And historically, as in many, many cases, it got moved from the middle of the field over to the edge to try and sort of make way for farming, use as much land as possible. And labour was cheap then and there was plenty of workforce, so you could do things like that. But the problem is that that straightened channel that's been moved hasn't had any benefits for wildlife, it hasn't been very good for fish, and with the way that we're getting more and more water, it wasn't even able to hold in the water that we get now in the floodwater, so it just overtops, and what it does is it just, it just spills over, and it used to sit on this land for three or four weeks, just a small amount of it, and just you would have wet, rushy, rubbishy ground. It didn't have very much use for anything really at all. And so what we wanted to do with this was to try and restore it to sort of more of a natural place where it should be, in the lowest point of the field, and in its natural position and its natural course. And we've done that now with it, and, and the beauty of it is, is that what you find now is that when we get really heavy rain, yeah, it floods and it jumps out and you get the, the flood water stored on the floodplain, but crucially in a couple of days' time when the water's gone, it goes back down and so it actually dries the land better because the natural drainage is improved. So we've got storing flood water upstream on here. It's now better for fish because the flow has been slowed. So it holds on to better sort of gravels that the salmon can spawn into and the trout can spawn into. But it drains better. So you can actually, you can see it's growing grass on this field now as opposed to just sieves. Mm. So you can actually graze it as well. So, so it's a win-win-win really right through. Absolutely. I love your use of sieves, of course. Not all our listeners will know that rushes, in its old Cumbrian term, was sieves or sieves. Uh, our, our good friend James Reebanks came up with this lovely quirky term, rewiggling, and that is what you've done here. Can you describe the process? A lot of it with rewiggling, it's not just as straightforward as digging a wiggly ditch that goes through a field. I do a lot of work with the Environment Agency and with, with the local Environment Agency. So what they'll do is if I identify somewhere and have a look and I think, yeah, that's completely in the wrong place, that river, it should be over there, I can speak to those guys and say, can you sort of show me some LIDAR data, some topography of the land and see what we're looking at? And, and a lot of the time what you actually find is that where the sort of new straightened river looks when you look at the topographic data you can actually see the original course next to it so it, it it shows it just backs that up that it's that it's in the wrong place this project here and coming back to the sort of the low risk part of it and the low risk element the environment agency got a quote for about seventeen thousand pounds or fourteen thousand pounds somewhere like that for a feasibility study to see how practical it could be and they said to me, how much would you want to do this and I said um, if I work with you guys I said I'll do the whole job for that so I did and um, worked with the EA and uh, it, it just and it sort of started from there this was this was the first main one and it's it's low risk and we did it for a much lower cost than it normally costs and I just use local contractors same as I always do with all of the work any money that comes in I want I want to use local people and show that we can do a good job, we can do it right and we can do it cost effectively. They're really happy with this and I think we've delivered lots and lots of benefits from it really. It flows beautiful and clear and the, there is a lovely broad meadow here and it uh, opens up a new life to this valley and I'm standing beside a heck for those people who know what a heck is which is like a, a hanging hurdle over the beck I've taken the moment to look over the heck and uh, there's actually a little bit of congestion of timber but interestingly there is considerable fish life there Danny. What can you identify? In amongst those fish there's, uh, there's minnow, there's quite a few minnows in there but there are lots of trout, there's lots of brown trout in there and there's, there's lots of salmon as well so this for me is, well it just highlights that it's working. So the, uh, the, I mean, the wood that we're looking at in the river, what it does, it does several things. It provides habitat for the fish, so it's somewhere for them to get in there. They can hide from the heron and whatnot. But it also, because it's fixed there and it's secure, it helps wash out underneath it. So it washes a deeper pool underneath it as well. Wood in streams and rivers is a very good thing, providing it's secure and it can't move anywhere. That's the main thing. Now that is fixed with stakes and also some heavy 
metal bars as well that are about six feet that are driven into the clay so that won't move it helps push a bit of flood water onto the floodplain but it's it just um, you know it provides somewhere great for the fish to hide so you get all this funding 14,000 whatever you roll up with a JCB let's say uh, how, how does that work out generally and on a lot of our ground and a lot of these grounds it's wetter stuff we're looking at a sort of bigger tracked machine 13 ton toy on here and dumper for sake of it um, and that's and that's the thing so I'm working to a loose design that the environment agency said to me you know to this one and, and they're all very very much individual on on the size of the catchment what sort of floors you're expecting through there but it was to this one it said pretty much if we're to sort of dig a, a sinuous channel one foot deep through that this was field so construct the whole channel make it design it all the features that we want into it, put it how we do, and then very gradually lower the bank where the original channel is to just slowly let some water move into it so it can gradually flush any mud through. As much rain as we get here, as much water as we get through here, it, it takes a winter and then it's all nice clean stony bottom to it and this has all just moved in naturally. It's quite staggering by comparison with Cooperbeck back there, the dry stream bed, which has high banks, some of which are no longer high because of flooding. Here we've got a negligible bank and it serves the whole year round. So this was done about two years ago. Has there been any tangible improvement on the fish life? I think one of the most important ones for me that I've noticed was in November last year when the, the salmon ran up here and I actually saw the salmon reds in the gravels where they've spawned. And to me, that is a, that is a massive success. I was absolutely amazed. I saw three salmon that would be about eight, nine pound each on this and they've, and they've spawned successfully on here. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. You'll be pretty proud all the way from the Sargasso Sea to Cooper Beck. It's always intriguing when you see sheaths with some little green growth coming out of the top of them. This enclosed area, it's got certain trees in, and across the new water meadow, there are sheaths. Is there a pattern here for different trees in different settings? Yeah, always the right tree in the right place. But the ones that you can look at here, this ground is slightly higher and it's slightly drier, so it supports things like oaks. Those are a lot of oak trees that we've got on there, and then there's some rowan as well that are coming out. Oaks are absolutely fantastic for biodiversity, and they're going to see us out by a long, long, long way. I mean, people sort of say that oaks are around for about 900 years. I think they grow for 300, and they stay the same for 300, and it takes 300 years to die. So it's a pretty good legacy to leave behind on there. But you move over to the wetland, more onto the, the wetter ground, the wetter species, and then you're moving on to things like willows and aspen. and Aspen, so they're the ones that quiver? Yes, they are, yes. And you don't see them very often. They're quite hard to propagate. But it's something that we're really missing a lot of older older and other wet loving species around so they're growing here naturally so it makes sense to have them here because they because they grow well so what are we really trying to achieve here we've got the mature trees that flank cooperbeck your new young growth the oak aspen and willow and the aspen and willow are just spread out quite close to the new beck and the remainder of the meadow is clear so what are you trying to achieve the, the trees serve quite a few purposes uh, I mean you can look at it from biodiversity once they get growing they're uh, you know they help to improve the soil the sequestering carbon and one of the other things that they're doing is they're providing shade for the new beck for the new watercourse as well temperatures are rising things are getting warmer and one of the things that trout and the salmon in the streams need are shade and cooled water as well so they're offering that as well and like you saw before with the bit of wood that was in the channel in there as the trees get older and as they mature some of them might fall over, some of them might lean over the beck, or the, the branches might come off. And what they're doing is they're all adding leaf litter to the water, they're all adding habitat to the water. So the multiple, multiple benefits from them. Of course, there's been quite a gap since there was a concerted planting, because farmers used to plant trees. When you look around what we can see here, I'm looking at old ash trees, there's mature ash trees. Well, ash dieback's well underway now in this in this valley so over the next few years we will start to use them there are 
old remnants of a hedge. So there's hawthorns there, but they're very old, very leggy, very woody. They'll eventually blow over and die. And once they've gone, we have that void. So if we can get in there now, start reinstating hedgerows, start putting new hedgerows in, start with that next generation. And as we, as we begin to lose the mature trees and we begin to lose the older ones, we at least have another generation that's already got a kickstart and is getting away. Most of the trees that we can see around here are, are former hedgerows. They're overgrown, they're old. The hedge isn't managed as it used to be. Essentially, when it was a, when it was a stock barrier, prior to post and wire fences, you know, those hedges, you wanted a good tight hedgerow that was a turned stock. That's, and to do that, you ended up getting into a cycle of managing and laying hedgerows. So maybe every 12, 15 years, somewhere like that, you went through, you laid the hedge, it then grows up from the bottom, you get a really good stock-proof dense hedge at the bottom, which just so happens that it's fantastic for wildlife as well. With the advent of the wire fencing, we don't need that as much now. So the purpose of the hedge really now is more of that of shelter, wildlife, but it isn't as critical that they're managed in that old way that they are, which, you know, I would like to see them return to that because it's effectively those hedges are lasting forever. Once you get into a, a really good management cycle, you end up laying them, you end up, you know, another 15 years, you cut the old material out, the new growth comes again from the bottom and you just get this sort of self-perpetuating natural barrier. So when you get uh, trees in the field, and I remember when I had a farm, we had one field called Seven Oaks. Individual trees in a field served a purpose. The good shelter. Sometimes it is a case of it used to be a woodland and it's been partly cleared over time and we've cleared it to farm it, as, as has happened for thousands of years. And some of the other trees that you'll find that are growing in there are probably down to grazing density, I would think. When we're looking back over time, a lot of the a lot of the fields are maybe more predominantly grazed with sheep now, whereas once off it would be more mixed. There'd be cattle, there'd be more cattle. But ultimately we had a lot less people to feed, so the, the actual herd numbers were lower. And therefore when you've got a field that's maybe just got some cattle in and it's more rougher grazing and it's not mown for hay or anything like that, it allows um, regeneration to sort of take. So you end up finding that you do get some natural regeneration and that's probably where some of your infield oaks and ash trees will have come from. They've just been given that sort of first few years break by, by the cattle not really being bothered by them because they're just happy to eat the grass. Of course you've used plastic sheaths and in a sensitively managed environment presumably that's not a, a real issue but people when they see somebody's planted trees and sheaths in an age where plastic has got such bad press they always see it as a downside. Uh, I'm, I, don't, I don't like to use them. If there's another way and another option, then I would go that way. But at the moment, for planting these taller tubes for the deer protection, there isn't anything out there currently that I can use to substitute it. What is very important is, I mean, those tubes do a great job whilst they're managed and whilst someone comes around and makes sure the following year that they're still stood up and the trees are still growing inside them and they haven't lain over and blown away, I have tried not using them before. There was a, a, an oak woodland that we planted and we deliberately didn't use plastic tubes to see if we could, if we could establish the trees without them. Uh, I think we lost over 50% of the oaks to Shocking. deer. Shocking, isn't it? So it's a necessary evil in my, in my eyes. With some of the hedgerows that we've been doing last year, they've just started to come up with a fully decomposable tree spiral which, great, I jumped all over that, yep, we're going all, that's what we're using now. So from, from my perspective, I absolutely want to do it. When we're stuck with the tree guards, I think the really important thing is to manage them. And when you finish with them, take them off and recycle them. There are, I believe, cardboard options. I'm going to try and be polite about the cardboard um, tree guards. <laughs> we have tried them, and they've sort of lasted about 18 months so not really long enough so i think there's probably some more development needed on there you've got to think we're fairly high up here and in winter time we get good beasting with the weather and they do tend to blow them to pieces really so um i think there's probably a little bit more development needed on on the cardboard ones that, that, that we've used anyways so over the last few years how many trees have you managed to plant Including the hedgerow trees and, and everything, it's probably just over 60,000, somewhere about 60, 65,000 trees, somewhere like that. And then we've got plans for the next two years um, that I know of definitely to put in at least another 40,000. Brilliant.
Brilliant. <laughs> Well, we've had a, a lovely little stroll further across the meadow and we've come up to a broad span of nettles uh, but fortunately Danny you stopped me from walking through the nettles and drew my attention immediately to the right uh, to an area of pond that looks pretty young. Yeah this this pond's probably about a year old and when we were doing another bit of the flood work further downstream we, we did it then it's a shallow pond, it's just more of like a, a scrape, you might almost call it. But what it does do is it makes fantastic habitat for the, uh, for the lapwings and the curlew and the snipe. It always amazes me that you make these ponds and within a matter of weeks you've got water boatmen and pond skaters and all sorts that have just taken over and they've come in, you don't know where they've come from and they've just flown in and as a result of that the swallows then come in from there and then the house martins come in from there. And There's a train. Yeah. An endless a sequence of opportunists who piggyback on the golden opportunity that you have created. This is your breeding ground for your damselflies and your dragonflies and this is the next generation of those that are coming up so I've noticed that just in, in the course of my life I'm only 43, um, we've lost loads and loads of ponds and it was just good practice to drain them or fill them in. That, that's what you were brought up to sort of do, you know, it's a wet place, you drain it. And I think we've got to the point now where we've drained so many wetlands now that that habitat is in so, so short supply um, that, that you can see why, why the insects and why the invertebrates and that are falling off a cliff. So when we've got a piece of ground like this that was wet anyways well why not do this this is a really easy win for nature that defra through future support could really help make a difference with this and it's fenced off it's not going to be an issue for fluke that kind of thing but it's really really good for the wildlife and a few sheep brush against the barbed wire and there's a lovely stock of herdwick wool on there well i think we ought to go a little higher there's a lear or a field barn up there we'll go up to there and, uh, and get a new prospect on the cooperbeck valley Well, we came up by that really handsome wall to the Leith or field barn and typical of me, I can't resist looking at barns like that. It's just gorgeous structures, antiquated, rustic building that always served a purpose and it's got hay in it now, so it's still used for its original purpose. And the view you get now, which is majestic, I'm now looking west to Clove Head and I can see Great Dodd and Hartside, Burkitt Fell, common fell and over the shoulder of that we just see the top of Helvellyn Lower Man and yes I think I can just see Cats to Cam and Gow Barrow and back here to Little Melfell. So Danny you're going to give me a now uh, an interconnected view of the multitude of uh, projects that are going on in this valley. I think as you look Pretty much in a, in a 360 degree from where we're at, I think we're working with everybody that you can see. So the neighbour just downstream on there, we're doing some new hedgerows which continue onto this big hedgerow that you can see that runs for about 800 metres. And when we cross the beck, there's a different landowner again on that side and we've done some re-meandering or, or re-wiggling to coin the phrase through that section there. And again, some wildlife ponds, some wetland ponds as well. And then as we sort of keep scoping around there's some new hedgerow to run on that landowner's boundary that goes along there which will help to connect that habitat up onto Melfell. Little Melfell. You can move further around again and there are some some tree cages that uh, that we've done as well. That's going to create the infield trees over there which again break up the tree line coming down from Melfell and then as we sort of progress further along there's a, a new oak woodland. I think there was uh, there's 1600 oak trees that have gone into that one and that was with a uh, local charity another way. Beyond that, and then that moves onto the skyline which gives us to Galbra, and then Galbra Hall Estate, and we're working with those guys on tree planting, tree cages, hedgerows, and that's connected us back up into Ullswater catchment now. So we've gone all the way from Matterdale, we've skirted around Melfell, and we're now connecting that up to Ullswater, and then all the other work that's gone on into Ullswater. And what we're sort of trying to achieve with it is a, is a big interconnecting network of habitats that are running through everyone's farm 
and so we've got a massively nature-rich farming landscape. Most importantly, we are farming as well. This is remarkable. What you've done here is weld the landowning community to a success that barely costs them a thing, but actually makes their land much more handsome, much more manageable, and far more biodiverse. Can you explain how you brought people along to convince them it's worth being involved with? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think, from my perspective, that there isn't, there isn't a threat. And I'd like to think that the farmers can see that, that I, I, I'm no threat to them, and to farming either. And I very much see myself as sitting in the middle of it. There are huge conservation needs and problems as well. I can also see that farming is really, really hard. And whilst you've got your, your two opposites that lock horns all the time, there's no progress. So I, I want to sit in the middle. I absolutely love my conservation. I love working on rivers and streams and re-wiggling. I also understand I've got livestock myself. I understand how hard farming is as well. We've got cattle, we've got pigs, we've got lambs. <laughs> you know, I still want to really produce good good livestock as well that are just in very very good surroundings and very much a sort of nature friendly surrounding so it's very much a case of right thing in the right place doing a good job being efficient and doing what you're saying that you're going to do as well that's hugely important and i think from that point on people can see what's going on and then they then they come to us and then they say would you have a look at this? See what you think here. I saw that you did such and such a thing for whoever down the road. Do you think that would work here? And that's the way that I want it to be. I don't want, I don't want to push this on anybody. I don't want to try and shove it down anyone's throat. I want them to see it and see that it just it, it fits in seamlessly with the farming. We can have the wildlife, we can have natural flood management and we can have farming as well. So that's what I want. There are a few landowners who are not quite there yet. Uh, how do you see that evolving? I would leave them be, basically. If that's their belief and that's, that's their tradition and ultimately every farm is different. Every farm's got a different financial circumstance as well and interest and some, some people just do not have an interest in that and they don't wish to do that. I think there are enough people now that are that are on board I would imagine that we're working with about 70% of the catchment there's enough people doing things around here now that we've got such a lot going on anyways if someone decides not to be part of it well or they can't be part of it or it doesn't work for them then that's fine and if at some point they decide to change their mind and they want to be part of it then people are more than welcome it's remarkable that you as you say got 70% that on national terms will be considered outrageously successful You just move a few paces in a pasture like this, which doesn't get any fertiliser. It's full of life. How do we expand the absolutely stunning work you've done here to other valleys in the Lake District? You, you just need someone that's sympathetic to both sides. That's what you do. You have to have a knowledge, a good knowledge of your conservation and you know your, your waterways and your watercourses and what you've got there. And you've also got to have a good knowledge of the farming. That's the secret. You then know how to marry the two of them together. And then from then it's time and it's just building relationships between the community, between the, the government agencies, between the environment agency, between Natural England. between you know, and, and that does take time to build up. I do get asked this quite a lot, how do you replicate this? I don't think there is a sort of a quick win that you can just jump straight into it. I think you've got to start off small and do a really good job make sure that you focus on what you're doing and build on the wins and grow it organically. It would be very hard to just throw a big pile of money at somebody and expect them to just deliver this kind of thing, what we've done. It, you don't have the relationships, you don't, you don't have the local landowner knowledge. You, you know, it takes time to build that up. What I want to be very much, and what people seem to like, is, is being a single point of contact. If someone's thinking, right, well, I'd like to do something with water... Okay, well, I'm thinking, right, well, that is the Environment Agency. So I know who to contact in the Environment Agency. Or likewise, if it's trees, that might be Pete at the Woodland Trust. It's matching the landowner needs to the available sort of body that's there and then the funding that's available. Because there's quite often there's funding available for all different kinds of things. 
And what is very useful for me with dealing with a whole catchment is you get a feel for what people are interested in. Say there was a fund came up for hedgerow and I'm thinking, right, well, I know that that person there, that person there, they're interested in that. And because I've got that relationship and I know people, you can say to them, right, well, there's money here, would like me to do it. And then, as again, I get the money from that fund, divvy it out to local contractors, or we bring in local volunteers, which is something that there's, we always get so many people want to volunteer with the tree planting. Interesting, isn't it? Do we get younger people involved with this at all? We get a lot of younger people and we get a whole range of people right through, which is great to see. We do quite a bit of work with Patterdale Primary School down there, so we've done bits of tree planting. And uh, this summer, uh, my wife was doing some wildflower plug planting with the school as well. And it's just, it's educating that next generation and why are we doing it? And they see why we do it. I'm always saying to the farmers around here, look at your whole farm, look at what you've got. If you've got wetland land that's over there that, that floods and you've tried to drain it and your dad's tried to drain it and your granddad's tried to drain it and no one can get anywhere and the government are saying, we'll pay you to store water on that land temporarily, look at it, take it. It's adding to the sustainability of your farm business. Likewise, if that then allows you to then continue farming and still producing top quality food, then to me that's, that's a win. Does that give you a perspective about the forthcoming changes to rural payments? Obviously, from the conservation side of things, yeah, I can see that you know improving that and increasing that is great for wildlife. What concerns me, though, is if that scheme, the new scheme, the Environmental Land Management Scheme, if it's not widely taken up or it's overly bureaucratic or it doesn't pay enough the only option that you've got left as a farmer is to intensify and you might have to undo some of the good things that you've done and you might have to increase numbers because you, if you've run a farm and you've run a family farm for generations you're not going to sit there and watch it go down the pan you're going to try and do whatever you can to to prevent that so, so it potentially could be good could also be a big risk as well i should be able to someone in my position should be able to build up what they would think would be an absolutely superior environmental scheme and i needed to get a new field number and they just shut up shop and they wouldn't answer the telephone they wouldn't return to the emails to sort of try and be fair to them i do think that they are a absolutely snowed under b they've had the numbers slashed over the last few years so there's hardly any staff there but you can absolutely see why people aren't going with it because you spend days doing a huge paperwork exercise and then no one will pick the phone up or nobody will reply to your email i mean one of the biggest things i think that would help this would be if there was a local natural england office or a local officer that could distribute the funding locally I could apply to that person. They then get to know me and they know that I'm trustworthy and then I'm going to do what it is that I say I'm going to do rather than me trying to apply to, to central government to a completely generic system and whoever I'm applying to, this means nothing to them. They've got no idea what a CIC is. They've got no idea the catchment work that we're doing. Whereas if you can bring it back locally, that is what I would like to see, ideally. Bring devolution. that devolution. I'm inspired by you, Danny, from what you've achieved. You worked in a mechanics firm, a motor mechanics, I believe, in Penruddock. And uh, you, you wanted to change your circumstances and get more into this. How did that sort of occur? The work from Ullswater CIC has just, it's grown. Grown and it's grown. It got to the point where I was doing a full-time job in the garage, fixing cars, which I hated doing. This began to be a full-time job as well, doing something that I absolutely love doing. And something had to give, and it was that. And now I work full-time, or still way more than full-time, but I'm doing something that I love doing. Well, inevitably, when you've got a scheme like this going, and it's growing and growing and growing, you'll have really high points, and you'll have really low points. Can you sort of identify any of those? The high points, for me, are to see what's getting done. When I drive around and I think, oh yeah, we've done that, we've done that hedge, oh, we've planted that, oh, we dug that pond. And then you see that there's wildlife all over it, and, and that to me is, is a massive high point. The low point, and 
touch wood, it's, you know, hasn't been a low point for quite a long time, was taking the plunge doing this full time. I'd gone from a, from a secure job with a secure wage, albeit doing something that I didn't like, to then taking the plunge to do something where funding can be sketchy at times and always a bit uncertain. You, you take a risk, I did take a risk, and I had full support of my wife, and she was right behind me and said, if that's what you want to do, then you've got to go for it. And, um, yeah, I'm very grateful to it, and I've not looked back. Have you a committee that works with you? Ultwater CIC consists of, of five members. Right back at the start, when we were on the, uh, the flood action group at Glenridin, it was voluntary almost. You were doing lots of work and not getting paid for it. And this is where I sort of want to take up the bulk of the work because there is funding there to cover my time. But what I don't want to do is ask anybody to work for nothing because I've done it and I only did it out of passion because I did about 18 months not getting paid because I, I knew that there was something there and it was the right thing to do. But I won't ask anybody else. And as we, as we grow and there becomes more money in there, then you know it, that that can keep that can keep going out and keep off. I just want to keep getting money in and distribute it locally. That's that's what I want to do really. There must be one project that you're really proud of. <laughs> There's a lot of projects that I am proud of, and I think the reason that we're here today is because I'm showing you this one, because this for me is where I really cut my teeth on things. Copperbeck. Yes. Copperbeck, Cowperbeck, Cooper, you know, depending on where you're at and how you want to call it, that's where I cut my teeth. That's where it started. And from what I've seen and the way that I've seen it develop, and I've, you know, I've been sat down there and I've seen barn owls scooting over it. I've seen the salmon coming back up it. I see all the dragonflies. I see that it's working. I see it's coming to life. That's probably going to have to be it, I think. Looking forward to what might be deemed your retirement in 20 odd years time 25 years time i don't know uh, what would be your vision for what's occurring here how do you see the Ellswater valley looking for me the best thing that i could hope to see in that time would be to have demonstrated a sort of gold standard of what you can of what you can achieve so we've got huge interconnected habitat wildlife corridors of hedgerows there all around the fields everywhere We've got wetlands that are functioning. We've got rivers that are acting normally and that are full of fish again and doing what they should be doing. And all alongside, we've got this protecting our farming heritage as well and showing that we've got, we've got that and we can still carry that on. And stretching up onto the commons a little? And stretching up onto the commons. The commons are still a, a massive important part of our farming heritage as well. So... I don't want to take that away, I don't want to diminish that or lose it. I would like to think that we can show, and eventually I'm sure that over the coming years we're going to have to start tackling some of the issues on the commons as well. So, so fences will come where they're judiciously set? I think that's going to have to be a part of it. If, if ultimately there is a way on there where you can work with the farmer, with the grazier, and you can plant trees, you can create funnels for directing when they've gone gathering days and things like that, and they're bringing the stock off the fells, you can work with them and find out where there's, where's an appropriate place to do that. And if the only way to get a woodland or upland planting established is a fence, I think that's going to have to be the case, isn't it, really? I'm going to take to this for one last moment. Uh, I'm going to ask the quickfire questions. What was your first Lakeland memory? Blimey. <laughs> My first Lakeland memory... One of the first ones would probably be when I was a little boy playing in the beck and building dams and seeing what was living in them. Even when I was about four or five year old, I've always, uh, <laughs> I've always been interested. You weren't a brownie, you were a beaver. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, is, what is your favourite fell? We've got a, a grand array here. My favourite fell, without doubt, would have to be um, Helvellyn. It's right behind my house. In quieter times or in winter, yeah, I love getting up there. Yeah, it's a magic fell, isn't it? What's the most important thing in your rucksack? Food. After catchment management stuff, food rules my life. Ah, and, yeah. uh, talking of which, which is your favourite Lakeland food? Favourite Lakeland food. I do not think you can get much better than uh, a bit of um, belted Galloway steak. Have you a favourite Lakeland view? I think going back to near Helvellyn, I think if you are sat on the top of Catsty Cam 
and looking back over to Oldswater, that takes a bit of beating. That it does. There are some marvellous perspectives on Oldswater. Yeah. That's a peach, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, is there a particularly memorable walk you'd like to share with our listeners? Depending on how keen people are, we used to like doing the boundary walk around Glenridden, up Helvellyn and go to Kirkston and then right back around uh, High Street and up Place Fell again and then back down to Patterdale. And that was quite a grueler, but uh, you get to take everything in. Yep. Anybody who does that, it would be a watershed in their life. <laughs> uh, your uh, Cumbrian hero or heroine, dead or alive? The one person that I have super, super respect for is my late granddad. He kick-started my sort of passion for this. Well, what was his name? John. John John Teasdale. Marvellous. Yeah. Yeah. He started off doing bits of tree planting at the family business. He used to like digging ponds and making fish ponds. and He just sort of passed on his knowledge of the wildlife and the way things were. And I took that and I, I have got massive respect for the man. It's great to hear about him. Uh, have you a favourite pub? Right across the road from my house is the Travellers in Glenridin. And I couldn't go past the Travellers. I absolutely love a good pint of Guinness in there. If you've got one <laughs> book about the Lake District uh, to take to the desert island, which one would it be? This isn't staged, but I do think I would take Mr Rebanks's book, just because there are such a lot of similarities in the way that he has been brought up and he has farmed and the way that I've done things. And then it was just a few years ago when we got together and we both realised that we're actually very, very similar paths. My granddad was friends with his granddad and so on and so forth. So, yeah, and, and, and I, like, I like what James is doing. He's showing what's possible to a wider audience. Uh, your perfect Lakeland day. When it's a day like this and the sun's shining and there's a blue sky and there's swallows flying around everywhere and there's, I'm having quite a good crack with folk. That's getting up there, that is getting up there. As long as the weather's nice and I can have a good crack with someone, then that's good. All we need is, is a bottle of Guinness and we're home oh, and dried. Oh. <laughs> if you were Prime Minister for a day, what one thing would you do to safeguard the landscapes of Cumbrian? The one thing that I would do, I think I would devolve the, the funding locally and let local people make decisions that are most fit into that landscape. Yes. You, you mentioned it earlier... Sharpening the pencil now is absolutely bang on the nail. When the time comes and a few friends gather, and this might be very, very far into the future, is there somewhere very special that your remains my rest? Well, I mean, I used to often think of Helvellyn as well, just pull out of badness for making people walk up there. That was all, to spread my ashes. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, second in that, I think anywhere through this Matterdale Valley, if I can just continually sort of... Um, preside over what I've started through here. That's fabulous. I'll be content with that. Journey's end back at Racing Gill and... Wow, it's turned into a bit of a scorcher, Mark. Wasn't expecting this. No, we started at the right time. It was lovely and cool. There were poor tents, lack of a cloud in the sky. That gave us a bit of a concern. (laughs) And lovely just to be able to stroll through the meadows there, Mark. And, I mean, I had the same feeling last time we were in this neck of the woods as I do now. Seeing this stuff and the turnaround so quickly in terms of biodiversity just makes me feel really good about things. Yeah, it's a real positive because Danny is imbued with a commitment to this valley. He's found a way of earning a bit of money, becoming a figurehead who actually welds things together. He knows everybody and brings them on side with the success of his projects. A couple of really interesting things that came out for me. Firstly is this kind of organic word of mouth Um, you can imagine it it's spreading almost like wildfire you know amongst people who perhaps hadn't thought about nature friendly farming or hadn't thought about re-wiggling their streams but suddenly he gets the call oh look you've done some work for my neighbour can you see what you can do for me I love the fact that 70% of landowners in this valley 
are on board. And you know, you said it. Could you imagine that on a national scale? This is really empowering stuff. Yeah, if only, as he said, uh, finances for rural development of all sorts was devolved properly. Yeah. So that there was a rooted connection between those that have the money and those who are competent and know the community and can bring it all to fruition. You need Danny's everywhere. You do, yeah. You need to be able to duplicate them a few dozen times. This is episode number 63 for all 62 previous episodes. Go to www.countrystride.co.uk. And we are on social, Mark? Yes, on Facebook and Twitter at Countrystride1. And we should remind people that if you like what we do, if you want to support us, we have various publications. The Olds Waterway Official Guide being in this setting, the Threlkeld Walking Companion and two more publications underway. Yes, uh Oldswater Valley Walking Companion and of course following that naturally the Keswick Walking Companion very much looking forward to that I was doing a bit of testing only yesterday walking back from Bassenthwaite along the very lovely lake shore there have you ever done that Mark? did you go by St Beger's? I did I've not been before it's Melvin Bragg's favourite church he got married there not long ago what a lovely place that is in Meyer House and I think we should um, head over there at some point next episode Mark we know what we're doing because we've already done it Indeed. We promised it on our last episode that we'd go and see Joss Naylor, and we did. Yes, I've started the edit, and it's jolly good fun. Lots of passionate words from Joss there, so we'll look forward to that as well. But for now, on this glorious semi-summer, semi-autumnal day, we're saying goodbye from wonderful Matterdale, and we'll see you on the next Country Stride. I'm just going to do the out the bit here. Oh god! <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I missed that bit. That's what it was like originally. <laughs> right, I'm, I'm going to Find my footsteps.